Greetings, friends. Greetings from Minnesota. Greetings from Bethlehem College and Seminary. Greetings from Living Hope Church and greetings from the Kunkel family. It's good to see you. Sorry, I'm just, it's just, I didn't get to see everybody when I walked in, so this is just a joy. Fa old faces, new faces. Wow, okay, that's great. Friends, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Thank you for supporting me and my family as we have traveled to Minneapolis for me to study at Bethlehem. Thank you for the 10 years that we were here. When I think about church and following Jesus, what's that supposed to look like? I mean, I can think about what the Bible says, but what's it look like? All the images that come to mind are you. So thank you. Thank you for being a partner in the gospel continually. Uh, I want to share a, an update before we get to the sermon text. Uh, just some updates of our family, of seminary, and of church. Just so you can kind of know what's been going on. And would love to bring you into, I know some of the things I get the email regularly of, of what's going on at Overland Hills. And I'd love to bring you into some of what's happening up in Minneapolis. So I have some slides. Here we go. There's our beautiful family. We're always this well-dressed and everybody's behaving well. This was, that was a hard shot to get, I'm telling you. So my wife, Sarah, if you don't know her, uh, Waldo's in the middle, he's five, going on six. Um, Dolly on the, your left is four, and then Lois is two. So just some updates. So, Many of you know, but maybe not all know, that uh, our family, well, Sarah and I came here back in 2011, and we served here for 10 years until 2021. We got married at this church, not in this building, it was that building over there. We moved a few blocks away, we bought our first house just a few blocks from here, and we had all three of our kids, well, we had them at Women's Hospital, we didn't have, that'd be kind of weird, <laughs> but maybe that's, maybe you guys are getting into that or something, I don't know, but but our kids were born here, and so many of you loved them. Um, Sarah and I have many mothers and fathers in the faith here, and our kids have many grandparents in the faith, and we count that a blessing. Having moved away, we understand better the gifts God gave us here because those things don't come as easily elsewhere. You can go to the next slide. This is probably a more realistic photo of life in Minnesota. It snows more, and it stays. This is... This is mid-October. Um, the snow melted this past week. It was 50 up there as well. So um, just some quick updates on, on each of the members of our family. So Sarah is super mom, caring for the kids. She's participating in this uh, seminary wives group. She serves at church, and she recently began teaching at Classical Conversations, like a homeschool group. So that's pretty cool. Sarah's been super wife to me. Um, she, if you want to ask her afterward, you can, she can tell you, I undulate through seminary like, what am I doing here? Why did I get my, this is the best thing ever. What should I do with my life? I know what I want to do. It's just, there's the constant up and down, and Sarah is a rock and a comforter to me. Waldo, in the blue, uh, he's crazy about Lego, and he loves climbing everything. Dolly has the biggest, most tender heart in the world and loves books. And Lois... You won't get it out of her today, but she 
talks, she speaks better than basically anyone in the family. She's already surpassed the other two in some ways, and then she memorizes the Bible faster than everyone in the family. That gets hard when your kids start to outdo you in that. Um, Seminary has given our family a fresh perspective on how much we love one another and enjoy one another. When you lose all of this, and then our family, and you're just by yourself. Some of you military people know what this is like. You, you start to learn like, wow, we really need each other. And you start to learn things about, wow, I didn't know how good we had it. Um, and let's cherish how good we have it. Uh, seminary has also taught us how much room we have to grow. Just kind of getting out of the environment you were in gives you a fresh perspective on all your faults, for better or for worse. And also, seminary's given us just such a fresh perspective on how sweet home is. So home and our family. Um, God has been so kind in the things he did in the past uh, 12, 15 years of Sarah and I knowing each other here in Omaha. An update on seminary. Slide, next slide. So this is uh, a classroom at Bethlehem. It's nothing glorious. We, the school actually rents space from Bethlehem Church that's right just in downtown Minneapolis. This is our hermeneutics class, and that's the cohort um, that I'm with. So every class I'm in, I share with 13 other brothers Uh, So every class, three of them are from India, which has just been a cool, unique perspective on what the Lord's doing around the world. Um, Everyone else kind of from around the United States. The classes I'm currently in are church history, hermeneutics, issues in contemporary worship, and preaching. As just a fun note, so you can go next slide, my preaching prof is John Piper. That's kind of cool, you know what I'm saying? Like, so there's high, high bar for today's sermon, you know what I'm saying? Um, so this is preaching class. Piper's talking about how he goes from the text to an outline in, in this. Um, a, few, a few things that God has worked through seminary, and maybe there's a few of you sitting here thinking about, boy, I wonder if I should go to school and study the Bible. Maybe I can whet your appetite for that. God has been so kind through school. Seminary has granted an amazing amount of time to work diligently on the original languages, Greek, and, and Hebrew as well. Um, seminary has disciplined me to think more clearly and communicate more effectively. I should be careful saying that because now you're going to judge if I communicate that effectively or not. Um, seminary has given me a much bigger picture of what's going on in the world, especially Bethlehem. They, they have a very broad reach into world missions and uh, seminaries just helped me become a better reader of the Bible for the sake of the church. This book is the church's book. It's not just like a holy book. Think about the New Testament, one of the letters we're going to read today. It's written for God's people. Become a better reader of the Bible for the sake of the church. All right, last thing. Church. So you can go to the next slide. So this is the church that we're meeting with now. So this is Living Hope Church. We meet in Maple Grove Middle School in Maple Grove, Minnesota, just a northwest suburb of uh, Minneapolis. And uh, so we joined there in February 2022. So as part of my education, I have to be an apprentice at a church. And so I serve as a pastoral assistant and lead worship on Sundays. The church is small, about 50 to 60, but we are strong. Um, We focus mostly on Sunday mornings, uh, Sunday worship, and small groups, which we call missional communities. Just one thing that's been so encouraging is Living Hope has such a desire for the lost to be saved. And so Sarah and I have been just kind of 
rekindled that, that desire to, to speak the word of Christ or to reach out to love those who don't know Jesus. Oh, you can go, next slide. Sorry, one more slide. This is mostly how church looks because we don't have a building. Like, just count it a privilege, you got a building. So church usually meets in somebody's backyard or in their house. So this was a, 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 a we actually were meeting with a missionary from Sweden uh, and this is what we could do. So we met in somebody's backyard. All right, you can kill the slides. Thank you so much, Alyssa. With all that, I just want to say thank you again. All, all of that and so much more, I count. You have made a gigantic deposit. Most of it is not money. Most of it was years invested and prayers into me, into my wife, into my kids, that that can even happen and that the Lord's working through that. I hope that maybe this sermon can be a blessing to you as well. Just one last word for you. Paul wrote this to the Philippians, and this is how I pray for you regularly. I hold you in my heart. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We love you, friends. With that, let's turn to our Bibles. This morning, we're going to hear from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, focusing on Ephesians 5, 18 to 19. Now, under your chair in front of you lies a relic of the past. I checked. They're still there. It's called a book. It's actually called a Bible, more particularly it's not as glossy as a screen and it can't multitask, but it does one thing really well. And I'm going to encourage you, you don't have to. Maybe your neighbors are going to kind of look at you and say, well, you should pick it up. I'm going to encourage you, for this sermon, it might be helpful to go old school and use the paper version of the Bible. We're going to be spending our time throughout the letter to the Ephesians. We're going to be kind of um, surveying Ephesians, and it'll be much easier, I think, to just kind of flip back and forth. In some ways, I think I'm, I told Sam Greenwell this, I might be bringing seminary to Overland Hills Church, so this, just hang with me. Get your Bible open, and we'll go. So, whichever version, get some of God's word before your eyes. Again, we're going to be in Ephesians 5, 18 to 19. So I'm going to start, actually, at the end of 18. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What happens when we sing? So we spent 20 minutes or so singing together. You ever ask yourself, what's happening when we gather to sing? If you're a faithful church-going Christian, 
you sing quite a bit. Each year, if you average about five songs per Sunday, and you miss a few Sundays, vacation or sickness, you're going to sing about 250 songs every year. That's just Sunday morning. Because I know at Overland Hills, you might sing at small groups, you might sing at a Bible study, you might sing at members' meetings. So you might hit 300 songs a year singing with the church. That's a lot of singing. How many other people do you know, I mean, Josh kind of teed this up, how many other people do you know that sing that often? Is our singing just noise? Whether it's pretty noise or not so pretty noise, depending on who's assessing. Is it merely art? Are we just performing? Is our music, is our singing, simply for your personal, spiritual, emotional satisfaction? Some might even say it's a waste of time. Let's get to the Bible. This morning's sermon I've titled, What God Does When We Sing. What God Does When We Sing. Ephesians 5, 18 to 19 concentrates our attention on a particular aspect of what happens when we sing. It speaks of what God does when we sing. I don't know if you've thought about that. Oftentimes, you're singing, but God's doing something in our midst. Understanding God's work among us singers has implications for how we might not hinder that work, but rather participate fully and eagerly with it. So for the sermon outline, I've organized the sermon under three headings, God's aim, God's instrument, and God's means. So you can follow on, God's aim, God's instrument, God's means. First, God's aim. God aims at fullness. God aims at fullness. Paul, in Ephesians 5.18, commands the church to be filled. You, church, are a vessel with the capacity to be filled. Throughout the letter of the, to the Ephesians, Paul uses fullness language to describe God's purpose for the church. God's aim, again, is fullness. So we're going to do some of this work now in our Bibles. Maybe we'll ha- hear some of this going on. So would you look at, we're going to look at two uses of fullness in Ephesians. First, take a look at Ephesians 4.13. In Ephesians 4.13, fullness describes the maturity and the steadfastness of the church. So here Paul writes, in the middle of a sentence, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro. God wants his church to grow up from being a child to being a man, from being immature to being mature, like Christ. For the church to attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ means that the church becomes like Christ, mature like Christ. They have his stature. Now, second important use of fullness in Ephesians is Ephesians 3.19. Ephesians 3.19. This shows up at the climax of Paul's prayer for the church. So here Paul prays that the church would be filled with all the fullness of God. There's a lot of filling full language here. 
So what does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God? Well, if you look back in his prayer at Ephesians 3.17, Paul prays that Christ may dwell in the church's hearts through faith. You can kind of get the image of, again, vessel and something's dwelling in. Similarly, in 3.19, Paul prays that the church would know the love of Christ. To be filled with the fullness of God is to be filled with Christ, who is God's fullness. It's Christ dwelling in the church and the church being steeped in the love of Christ. Now remember, in our text, Ephesians 5, 18, it commands us, the church, to be filled. We are the church. We are to be filled with something. And from our survey of Ephesians, at least in Ephesians, Paul's idea of what we're filled with is Christ. In Ephesians, God fills us with Christ. God's goal, God's goal for the church is that we would be mature, Christ-filled and Christ-like. When you're filled with Christ, you're mature like Christ. So this begs the question, what does it look like for Overland Hills to be full of Christ? Overland Hills is full of Christ when it knows the love of Christ. Christ dwells in the heart of OHC when OHC cherishes Christ more than anything. So this shows up in comparisons. When OHC treasures Christ more than personal preferences. When OHC loves Christ more than politics. When OHC loves Christ more than prosperity. When OHC prefers Christ to the praise of man. When OHC loves Christ more than the pleasures of sin. That's what it looks like to be full of Christ. Now if your attitude is kind of ho-hum, about hearing the gospel preached, if you don't really care to share Christ with each other, if you don't find it enjoyable to share Christ together, you're living contrary to God's goal for the church. So let that sit for a second. You can be in church, saying the right things, know the right answers, and walk in a way that's contrary to what God's doing. It's not the place you want to be. You want to be in step with the Lord. God aims at your maturity, your Christ-likeness, your fullness to be fully saturated by the love of Christ. Now let's take a look back at Ephesians 5. So Paul, again, commands the church, be filled. And I want you to see for yourself in the Bible that what Paul has in mind in the immediate context of what the filling means, what does it mean to be filled, he has the same fullness, maturity kind of concept in his mind. So if you look at 5, 15 to 18, in this section, Paul stacks three pairs of commands, one after the other, with the form, don't do this thing, but do this thing. These are things to like, notice when you're reading your Bible. If, if something's repeated, like there's these three sets, they all look the same. I wonder if there's a reason for that. So take a look at this formula. Don't do this, but do this. We're going to think about two categories. What's the don't category and what's the do category? So 515, the first one, Paul says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. 517, he says, therefore, do not 
be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Do you see the not, but, not, but? It's just all right there, a little, little package. And that's something we should focus on. So the three sets, don't walk unwise, but in a wise way. Don't be foolish, but understand the Lord's will. Don't get drunk, but be filled. Can you see that similar maturity, immaturity dynamic at play? Walking unwise, being foolish, getting intoxicated, those aren't signs of maturity. Those are signs of immaturity. Walking in wisdom, understanding the will of the Lord, that's a sign of maturity. Now, in that category, the but do this category is be filled, which we've seen elsewhere in Ephesians refers to maturity and Christ's likeness. Now consider verse 18 as well. So let's look at just verse 18 in detail. I know some of you might be thinking, he didn't read the beginning of verse 18. What's he gonna do about that? Let's look at it for a moment. So in verse 18, the contrast between drunkenness and being filled doesn't seem to emphasize so much what substance is going into your body, but what state of being or condition you're in. And Paul clarifies this because he says, don't get drunk with wine for... That is debauchery or reckless living. Paul's concern is not so much on wine nor mere drunkenness, but on what being drunk with wine is. It's debauchery. It's reckless. It's stupid. The drunk is out of his mind, intoxicated, and lives recklessly. In contrast, the one who's filled with the Spirit has a sound mind is sober and lives sensibly. God aims at a sober-minded, self-controlled, clear-thinking, Christ-like church. Therefore, in his word, God commands the church to seek that, to become that. And he says, be filled, grow up, be mature. That is, let yourselves be filled up with the love of Christ so that you'd grow up and be mature like Christ in all that you think, feel, and do. Just pause for a second. Again, consider the grace that God has given us in telling us what he's doing among us. Sometimes I think in the church, we too readily run to mystery for how God works. This is a big book. God has a lot to say about what he's doing in us and for us, for his glory. And it's beautiful to know what God's goal for his church is. Again, so you can keep in step with it. God's aim for the church is fullness. This leads us to the question, so how does this get accomplished? How does we grow up? Point two, God's instrument, the spirit. Again, we're going to do a little seminary work, so... Either you're welcome or I'm sorry, but stick with me. Okay, here we go. Depending on what Bible translation you have in front of you, verse 18 either reads, be filled with the Spirit or be filled by the Spirit. Here, we'll, we'll go real seminary on you. So Paul, just, Paul didn't write, 
Well, he probably didn't write it. Somebody else, he probably dictated it to somebody else. Whoever wrote Ephesians, as Paul was talking, Paul didn't write with the Spirit. He didn't write by the Spirit. You know what he wrote? He wrote en pneumati. He wrote Greek, right? Like, so this is the strange thing with translation. We're reading a translation. This is like, this is God's word. Don't doubt that, okay? But this is a translation of Greek. With the Spirit sounds like, if that's the translation we choose, sounds like the Spirit is the content or the substance that the church is filled with, right? Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled by the Spirit sounds like the Spirit's the one doing the filling. Both are viable translations of the Greek. So now we get to try to work this out. Which one's the one we should go with? Which one's right? Is it with the Spirit, by the Spirit? Which one did Paul intend? Now, we've already done some legwork on this. We've seen that throughout Ephesians, Paul uses words like fullness and filled to describe the church being filled with Christ. Remember back in chapter 3 especially, being filled with Christ is having Christ dwell in you or knowing the love of Christ. And if we do a quick survey of Ephesians regarding the Holy Spirit, it becomes apparent that Paul speaks of the Spirit not as content, not what's coming into us, but as the instrument of God's work in and amongst the church. I don't think I'm saying the Spirit's not in us. I think that's true. But, but Paul's highlighting one thing God is doing here. So I want to show you really quick how Paul talks about the Spirit as an instrument what God works through or by. So here's, we're going to fly through these, so if you want to do your Bible drill right now, try to keep up, but you can just listen to these. Here's what the Spirit, how the Spirit's described as an instrument in Ephesians. Ephesians 2.18, the Holy Spirit accesses the Father for the church. Ephesians 2.22, the Holy Spirit builds the church into a temple. Ephesians 3.16, the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to the church. Ephesians 4.3, the Holy Spirit unifies the church. Ephesians 4.30, the Holy Spirit seals the church. Ephesians 6.17 and 18, the Holy Spirit supplies the church in spiritual warfare. God works in the church by his instrument, the Spirit. We just sung a song like, you, this is something we all agree on. We're just wondering if Paul means this here. Because we just sung a song, Holy Spirit, breathe new life into my willing soul. Let the presence of the risen Lord come renew my heart and make me whole. We're saying, Spirit, do something. You're an instrument that God uses. In Ephesians, the Holy Spirit accesses, builds, reveals, unifies, seals, supplies. And in 5.18, our text, the Holy Spirit fills So if you have a translation that reads, be filled with the Spirit, it's fitting to understand it this way. Be filled with the work of the Spirit. That is, be filled with Christ. Christ is, again, filled up with Christ by the working of the Holy Spirit. Now, this becomes clearer if we look back at Paul's prayer in chapter 3. In 3.16, Paul, that, that place where he says, oh, Lord, fill them with your fullness. He's praying for the church. He prays that they would be strengthened through God's spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts. The spirit is the one who strengthens the church so that Christ would dwell in it. 
that it would be filled. In other words, God fills the church with God by God. Hear that? God fills the church with God by God. Or, translation, God the Father fills the church with Christ by the Spirit. That's what God is doing in the church. He's filling us with himself by his power, the power of the Holy Spirit. We are the honored recipients of God's triune work. So, if God's aim is for you, church, to be filled, and the Spirit is the instrument by which he accomplishes this, does that make you unnecessary? Are you unnecessary? Like, what are you even doing here? He's just going to do it anyway, right? Do we just, or do we just gather together, kind of sit back and lounge and say, all right, fill me up. Here we go. Ah, there it is. Yeah, you know, so, are you unnecessary? This brings us to point three. God's means. God's means is song. Now, do you know that God uses human means to accomplish his ends? For example, God uses the means of preachers to accomplish his end of saving people. Some of you know this from Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, but no one's going to hear unless someone preaches. Preachers preach, People hear, believe, and are saved. Now, who did that work? Who made that happen? God. God saves, and he does it by means of a preacher. Things we do are means to his ends. Our singing is another means that God uses for his purposes. So back in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, Paul writes, be filled by the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. In saying addressing, singing, making melody, Paul is clarifying how do we carry out the rather ambiguous command, be filled. You are not unnecessary, you are means. The Spirit fills the church with Christ by means of the church's singing. And I want to help you see this a little bit better because it might not click right away. So just a few sentences earlier, if you go back to Ephesians 5, 15 to 16, you're going to know a lot of Ephesians by the end of this. Paul states a similar command and then shows the means by which you carry it out. So he says in Ephesians 5, 15, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And you could be saying, all right, well, how do I do that? Like, how, do I, how do you walk wise? He says, walk wise, making the best use of the time. Making the best use of the time is the means or how you walk as wise. Now, in another of Paul's letters, a parallel text, it's just almost the same as our text, Ephesians 5, 18, 19, Paul speaks of singing as a means for Christ to dwell in the church. Colossians 3.16 reads, you can just listen, you'll hear it. Let the word of Christ 
dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In Colossians, God uses singing as means to having the word of Christ dwell richly in the church. This is an experience you probably have. You get songs stuck in your head and you start thinking about Jesus on Tuesday, right? This is, this is how God keeps the word of Christ living in us richly. In Ephesians, God uses singing as the means to fill us with Christ by his spirit. Now, I gotta make this clear because some of you really keen people might be thinking this. We do not manipulate. So being means, God's means to his ends. We don't manipulate God by our songs. Don't get that in your head like, here we go, we're gonna sing and we're gonna make God do some stuff. No, God manipulates or transforms us through our songs. We don't activate God, his work, by our songs. Rather, he activates us through our songs. That is, by his spirit, he energizes us to grow up into Christ, to become mature Christians. Our singing is his means. When we sing, God is working among us to fill us with Christ. Now, you might be thinking, okay, preacher, kind of tracking with you, but it sounds like you're saying that the Spirit of God's gonna work if we just open our mouths and start making noise. Is there more to that, to this concept, than just pure vocal sound? Is there more to this than just, like if we just sang the ABCs, twinkle, twinkle, and the national anthem. What a Sunday that would be. I'd be wanting to go home and, uh, you know how you're always wondering to say, how can I tell my friends at work on Monday about church? If you had that Sunday, you would tell them on Monday. So is there more though to us being means, to us being filled than just mere sound? Yes, there's more to it than that. The means God uses to fill his church is not mere noise, Rather, he works through a very particular kind of song. I want to show you in the text, it's just right there, six characteristics of the church's song. This is important because this is like our part, our participation in God maturing us, growing us up. Here are six characteristics of the church's song. First, it is a communal song. Paul says, address one another. Now, maybe you haven't noticed this, but you got one more song today and you can pay attention to this. When we all individually join our voices in song, they like amalgamate, that means like combine, into a single voice that you can perceive in the room. It's the voice of the church. It's the voice of the bride, us singing our love song to the bridegroom, Jesus. So listen for that at the end. It's a communal song that we're singing. This isn't your song and your song and your song. This is a song we do together. To address one another, each of us can't be off on our own having our personal spiritual moment with Jesus. Instead, we have to share the moment together. Listen to one another. We sing together and for one another to hear. We are to address one another. 
Now, similarly, so one characteristic, it's a communal song. Second, it is a unified song. When we address one another in song, we sing the same song in the same time in the same way. Do you kind of see how if we sing the same, the same, the same, there might be a unifying effect. Just turn on the World Cup right now and you'll see unifying effect happening in the stands. How much more when the Spirit of God is at work? Third, our song is a diverse song. God works through a diverse song. So he says, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. See how those are different. We don't sing one kind of song. God works through various songs, styles, and musical forms. The church's song is a musical song. That's redundant, but say it anyway. We, God works through a musical song. Making music is necessary for the church to grow up into Christ. We don't simply talk or recite together. We make music together. Number five, the song God works through is a doxological song. That is, as Paul says, we sing to the Lord. In singing, the church goes vertical. We listen to one another, but our primary audience is God. We sing songs about God to God. Finally, the song that God works through, this is key. This is like the Old Testament summed up in just a few words, is an affectionate song. The problem with the Israelites was their hearts were always so far from God. But Paul says here, sing with your heart. Sing with your heart. Our whole being is involved when we sing, both body and soul. We sing, it's like a physical thing, out of a heart that treasures God above all else. Keep in mind that this is a commandment we're supposed to obey. Be filled through singing. We sing and God, by his spirit, fills us with Christ. God grows us up into maturity through our communal, unified, diverse, musical, doxological, affectionate singing. Singing isn't just like, ooh, that felt good. Or maybe it is, but the reason why it feels good is because you're more like Jesus now. Your hearty, humble, eager, Godward participation in song, week in, week out, plays a significant role in what God is accomplishing in and through his church. So in light of this, I want to draw out a handful of implications, things for you to keep in mind as you gather here weekly to sing or when you gather elsewhere with the church to sing. So a few implications. First, be a participant. Be a participant. Don't sit on the bench Get out on the field and play. Now, there's probably somebody who could raise their hand. Who here wants to sit on the bench the whole game? Play it, you know, like, I know, there's like a few that you would want to do that, but that's okay. God wants you on the field. He's put you in the game. Sing. Your role is to be in the choir. For this thing to work, for us to be filled with Christ, each person must do their part. In adding your voice, you're working for the good of your own soul, and for the good of the brothers and sisters whom at least you say you love, keeping your mouth shut might be saying, well, I don't really care about them that much. I don't want them to know Jesus. God uses your participation in song to make this church to be more like Jesus. So be a participant. Now on the flip side, be a spectator. 
listen to the song of the church. Listen. This is hard, I know. Like, so I, I sat there for, well, it's mostly over there, but I sat there at the piano for 10 years at Overland Hills Church. I feel fairly comfortable playing piano. Singing, I'm always growing into it. And I know that a lot of you feel like you haven't even started to grow. But don't be afraid of hearing those around you and don't be afraid of those around you hearing you. That's the point. That's the point to be heard. In many ways, your brothers and sisters are preaching to you. They're proclaiming to you the goodness, the glory, and the grace of God. Pay attention to their song. Number three, be versatile. Be versatile. In other words, be open-minded, willing to try new and different things. We're to sing a diversity of styles and musical forms. Therefore, when the church doesn't sing your favorite song, don't check out, don't complain, don't judge. Instead, trust God's wisdom in telling you to sing with variety. Enjoy the variety. He says sing in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We could extend it. Pop hits, classic hymns, upbeat tunes, slow ballads, deep, profound, wordy lyrics, simple, straightforward, repetitive lyrics. Your favorite song, your brother and sister's favorite songs. Be versatile. Fourth, be moved. Music is inherently affectional. You all get this. Every human on earth gets this. This is a question, I, if I said, if you meet someone who says, I don't like music, period, you meet someone who probably doesn't have a soul because it moves our souls. That's why we like it. It makes us feel. We want to feel. Music moves us. Now, some in the church see this as a risk. Uh-oh, where is it going to move us to? However, in reality, it, is, it, it appears to be a spiritual tool. Music is a tool for God to accomplish what he's doing. God makes us hate sin and love him by having us sing about how detestable sin is and how lovely he is. God wants us to be moved musically toward him. So if you're emotionally overwhelmed and moved in worship when the church sings, for example, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. If that moves you, that's good. It ought to. That's the point. Through our songs, God makes us love what he loves and hate what he hates. So be moved, friends. Finally, be attentive. I was sharing some of the things from this sermon with my wife, Sarah, and uh, she remarked, Bobby, this is like the easiest command to obey. You just have to pay attention. Because again, if you just step back for a second, God's doing a whole bunch of work. We just, we're singing. Be attentive to the Spirit's work among you. When we sing heartily, Godwardly, God is at work. Pay attention to that. 
It's awesome to see God work. I mean, how many people here, like you want to see people get saved. You think about the preacher who gets to see someone get saved. Well, what about seeing each other grow up in Jesus? Wouldn't that be cool to witness? So, for example, when uh, you receive comfort and strength when the church sings, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. That comfort and strength that you receive is from the Spirit, reminding you that Jesus keeps those whom he died to save. Pay attention to what's happening as you sing. God is working and you're in the audience to watch his work. Savor the experience of the Spirit's work in your midst. So friends, what happens when we sing? When we sing, God works. When we gather for worship, singing may seem routine, but is that a bad thing? Through our routine, five songs per week, 250 or so per year, God performs an extraordinary work. He fills us with Christ by his spirit. He shapes and satisfies us with the love of Christ. Through singing, the spirit takes us from a state of folly and immaturity to spiritual sobriety and sound-mindedness. Through singing, God makes us more like Christ. That's his goal for the church. Through song, he's bringing us to our appointed end, to know Jesus, to be inhabited by Jesus, and to become like Jesus for our joy and for his glory. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, Sing, do not neglect this delightful and profitable duty God has charged you with. Instead, embrace it. Give yourself entirely to song and watch God work. Let's pray. So Father, we say work. Even now, as we sing again together, work. Make us like your son. Awaken our hearts so that our songs would be filled with love and passion, desire for you. Open our ears to hear one another. Lord, erase from us, take away from us our inhibitions, Take away from us the fear of man and rather give us just the love of the family of God around us. So Lord, work through song. Amen.